I'd say a new thing would be Fusion 360, which is a 3D design software that is designed specifically for being able to mill and 3D print. So you're kind of building to exact specifications and it's built with those tools in mind. So if I want to mill something on a CNC mill, I can design it that way so that the mill is speaking the same language as the program. Same thing with 3D printing. And that's been a really good way to create objects for my installations, one. But two, it's also a good way to just lay out my installation because Mm. I can do it with exact measurements and I can set up kind of a rough gallery setup and I can set up where my projectors are, the throws and everything. And that's a really great pre-production visualization tool. So So both for creating objects, but also for pre-vis. Yeah, it's very similar to CAD. Welcome to The Practical Filmmaker, an educational podcast brought to you by the Filmmaker Institute and Sunscreen Film Festival where industry professionals talk nuts and bolts and the steps they took to find their success today. On today's show, Leslie Foster introduces us to experimental film within the art world, how it works, and how his design media art studies at UCLA helps him get closer to his goal of creating art with film as a medium. Find the full transcripts and more at thepracticalfilmmaker.com. I'm your host, Tanya Musgrave, and today we have Leslie Foster, experimental filmmaker, director of art residency at Level Ground, which is an arts nonprofit based in LA, and he is now deep in the throes of the Design Media Arts MFA program at UCLA. Welcome to the show. It's good to be here, Tanya. Okay, so we've known each other going on about, like, what, 15, 16 years now. Yeah. So we got to set the stage for the rest of the folks. <laughs> How did you get to where you are right now? I spent a lot of time in undergrad kind of wandering around different things. I studied biology for three years. I was studying German in Austria and Germany and just trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, and I, I thought I had a plan. It fell apart while I was in Austria and Germany, and I realized I didn't know what I wanted to do. And after six months of kind of stressing about this, my roommate, um, Chris Walters, who was a student at Southern Adventist University, said, well, what do you love? And so I started listing things I loved. I like literature, fashion, science. And I just kept going. And he kind of just stops me. He's like, oh, that's film. And I had this massive light bulb moment like (laughs) that that shifted the course of my entire life at that point. Um, Maybe the only light bulb moment like that I will ever get. I don't think I will have another. I kind of went back to Thailand after that year in Austria and Germany, stewed on that, looked at a bunch of different film schools. And Chris had said, you're going to look at a lot of places, but you're probably going to end up going to Southern because of the practical education there. And at that point, and uh, things have changed now. Uh, There's a few schools that do really good practical undergrads Mm. um, in film. Mm. But Southern was one of the few places that did like a very hands-on program right from jump. Mm. Um, I talked to students from USC and UCLA now, and the access to gear and equipment is still hard for them. Mm. Whereas at Southern, we had access to gear and equipment pretty quickly Mm. and got to play and I thought that was amazing. So I ended up going there. I have to you know, acknowledge that I'm kind of putting words on what my experience was then because I didn't have the words there. But I think what I was doing was I was looking for a medium. Mm. I wasn't so much looking to be in the film industry. Mm. I was an artist looking for a medium and film was that medium. But it took me a while to actually discover that about myself. Yeah, yeah. Because I knew that I wanted to do kind of weirder films. Like my first films were like super poetic. Like <laughs> No. <laughs> Leslie films? <laughs> See, exactly, right? So there's already a reputation. Yeah. So, I mean, again, a word that I would apply to that is poetic cinema, Mm. um, something that I use a lot of my writing now, but it's not a word I had then. So I was just kind of creating poetry. And I realized that film and visual language was the language I'd been looking for Mm. all my life in my writing and my poetry. Uh, Maya Darren, who's considered 
one of the founders, the mother of experimental film, says that she was a mediocre poet in written, written language. And then she discovered mm. film. And mm. that's where she could really create poetry. And I found the same thing. I'm mm. not a great poet in written language. <laughs> like I have a few things that I'm happy about. So it was great to like find a language that worked for me. And so at Southern, I just, you know, I don't think I even specifically was like, I'm going to make weird art film. I was just creating the stuff that was bubbling up for me. Yeah. You know, I adored the folks there, but they didn't necessarily know what to do with me. I am grateful that they gave me space. Mm. You know, it, instead of shutting me down, they at least gave me the space to work on that. Yeah, yeah. So after that, I ended up getting a job in London for a year where I worked for a production company that was associated with the Adventist Church called TED Media. And uh, we created music videos, short films. And one of the reasons I was attracted to it is that it seemed like there was space for me to kind of like hone um, the more experimental feeling I was having. Like I was getting, I was starting to get that vocabulary that, oh, I'm doing stuff more in experimental space. But at that point, my headspace was still like, the film industry is a place to do this. I just have to create my own pocket. Mm. And if you fast forward over the next few years, I end up in LA. I end up starting my own nonprofit that ultimately falls apart three years in. But I learned a lot of really beautiful things from that and tried to create experimental work in that way. And again, it was like, I have to create my own bubble in the film world. And somewhere in that process, I started meeting people who were doing video art within the fine art space and hearing mm. about that. And I was like, oh, wait, 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 maybe that's actually where I want to be creating this. And in 2013, as the nonprofit was sort of having its kind of heartbreaking, faltering, you know, end, mm -hmm. I was invited by a curator, Sarah Kono who'd seen some of my student work and was like, I want you to create new work for a show that I'm putting on in downtown LA. Um, and I said no okay. to her. Uh, what? <laughs> and I kept saying no, because I was like, I'm busy. I'm trying to get this feature documentary finished. And is and I, I, I'd spent, uh. like, we kind of put all the nonprofit's resources in doing this documentary about violent homophobia in Jamaica. Mm. I'd spent five weeks undercover in Jamaica with cinematographer Tim Banks. It was something that was really dear to my heart and we were not able to to get the funding for post. And so that's kind of my life was consumed with that. So the last thing I wanted to hear was like, do this thing, do this other thing, <laughs> create a whole nother film. And she kept bugging me. She actually started sending me Nike swooshes on my phone. Like, just do it, just do it, just do it. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. I was just, I was pretty, I got more and more stubborn. <laughs> I ended up getting called on jury duty. I was like, oh, I'm not gonna bring my laptop. I'm just gonna go and have my headspace literally five minutes into me just like waiting in the jury pool, this idea hit me. And I was like, oh no, no, go away, <laughs> go away. And like, I just knew I had to do it. And I knew it was for Sarah's show. Like mm. it was just, and so I called up my collaborator, Scott, who I call my art husband. And I was like, Scott, I think, <laughs> I think we need to do this. And I, you know, described the idea. And he was like, yep, we need to do this. So we ended up creating that and not just doing that. But one of the things I'd really wanted to do was build installation space. Mm. I'd been inspired by the designer um, who would create incredible installations for his fashion shows. And I was seeing these in like 99 and 2000 when I was starting college. I'd always had this feeling I wanted to do installation, but didn't have a way in. And I was like, let's do this as an installation piece. So we created mm. an installation, these two chambers. In the second chamber, you could watch the film. We did things like hang like little jars from the ceiling with rose water and tea lights. So as the tea lights heated up, you would smell the rose water through the space. So really making it a multi-sensory experience. Mm. We projected the film onto a stretch piece of like cotton fabric with a really nice texture. Just like changed up how you would expect to encounter a film. Mm -hmm. And that evening people were leaving weeping and I was just like, I think I found it. This is the wow. space I need to be playing in. And that's, wow. that 2013 is really my full shift 
into art space. Yeah. And it's a slow shift. You know, I'm mm-hmm. kind of slowly pulling away from going, oh, this, the film industry is where I have to, like, make my little home to going, actually, there's already a home for me in the art world and mm-hmm. understanding of this and a language for this. Which, if we fast forward even more, leads me to grad school because something I'd really craved in undergrad and didn't get was a language for what I was doing. Mm. Because let's be honest, it's niche and there's not many people who have that understanding. That's Mm. not their fault at all. Mm. But I wanted to work with people who actually understood it. And so going to UCLA has meant that I've gotten to work with people who've literally written the book about experimental film and video art, which is amazing. You know, Um, people whose books I've been reading before and now I get to learn from them is, is really incredible. People like Holly Willis and Rebecca Mendez who, you know, have worked through this art. And so that was really exciting for me to be able to finally be in an environment where I could show some work and they had the vocabulary to discuss it with me. So in this program at UCLA, I I do have a question. Why higher education? Because like, all right, first, I know personally that you like soar when it comes to academia, like Mr. Perfect Score. Uh, Like, I, I forget which one it was. Was it English? I don't remember. <laughs> uh, it was it was English on the GRE, yes. Which <laughs> turns out UCLA doesn't even require. I was doing that to get into a PhD program at USC, actually. Oh, but okay, okay. I didn't get into that program. I got into UCLA instead. Um, yeah. You soar at academia. <laughs> However, I'd, I'd venture to say that it's not entirely the case with a lot of, I mean, probably most artists. So why? Like, why higher education? What's the goal? Yeah, I mean, I think everybody has to take this at their own mileage, but I think especially for artists, academia and higher academia, getting a grad degree becomes a way to make connections. Mm. My rule for myself, and I know that this is a privilege and not everybody else can do this, was that I'm not paying for grad school. So I was mm. really grateful to find a program that is fully funded. And it's not fully funded for everybody. You mm-hmm. know, I make that clear. If you're an international student, you're definitely paying for it, unfortunately. But if you're a California resident, it is a fully funded program. Oh, okay. And that was great um, because... I don't have to accrue debt over this and I get to be in this incredible program where I'm meeting all these incredible artists constantly. And so it's about working with my cohort who are already working artists, Mm -hmm. many of them, um, and getting to learn from them, us learning from each other. It's about us creating work. And the program is built to be more practical. You're constantly creating. So it Mm -hmm. is built for artists. You know, yes, Mm -hmm. there's the academic side. But the thing is, is that as you get deeper in the fine art world, academia and art are crossing over like artists are always playing you look at the art especially abstract art and the art that was exploding in the 60s and 70s even before that and people are playing in conceptual space they're dealing with these difficult theoretical ideas and then expressing them in art forms and i think often people who are outside of the art world struggle with you know stuff that isn't what they're used to figurative kind of representative art um, as things become more abstract in the early 20th century But what's happening is people are trying to play with these conceptual ideas. They're playing with theory. They're playing with philosophy. Mm -hmm. And they're expressing it in art form. Mm -hmm. So there's actually a really natural meeting place for artists within academia. Mm -hmm. And especially a program that I think is built to be able to be conversational about that. Mm -hmm. Then also incorporate um, your own work and the insistence that you're still creating work through this whole thing. Mm. I think the other thing is is that the nice thing about grad school is there's a lot less emphasis on grades. Like the Mm. important thing is not the grades at that point. It's creating the work. Mm -hmm. You graduate from grad school and nobody's asking what your GPA from grad school was. (laughs) Nobody cares. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right? (laughs) You graduated from grad school. You know, you don't, honestly, we don't ask our doctor if they graduated first from their class (laughs) or like in the middle of the pack or even last. Like they're just, they got that MD. That's the important thing. So there is a different standard of understanding there. So you're saying like, you know, you're going there for 
a lot of the connections. Um, connections for what? What is the goal after this particular goal? That's a good question. Um, so I, I'll speak kind of generally and then t- about my own kind of path. Mm. I think generally you're looking for, and, and and this especially comes in handy when you're kind of at a bigger name school like UCLA, mm-hmm. where you're hoping that, you know, you get to meet curators or gallerists who might be able to forge your career or other artists who are already kind of establishing their name. Mm-hmm. Um, because the thing is, is, with a school like that, you never know who's kind of coming through the hallways or mm-hmm. coming to a show. Yeah. Like when UCLA puts on a show, there are people from around the art world who want to see what's happening with the students there and okay. will come and see that. And that's a good chance to make those connections to forge your career afterwards. A lot of artists make their living in academia and teaching afterwards. So, mm-hmm. you know, most artists have to have day jobs. And I think that's not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And to have a day job that's within your world, teaching about the art you do, can be a really nice, comfortable fit for you to keep doing your practice and then be able to teach. And I think the art world is a little different from some um, academia where you're completely separate Mm. from the you know the actual field yeah 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 Uh, my dad's a business professor for example you know he doesn't run a business he doesn't you know he's not hanging out in the business world Mm. he's writing about it he's theorizing he's doing articles about it but it's a different world whereas i'd say both like the sciences and art are deeply enmeshed in each other's worlds the Mm. academic world and the science world or the academic world and the art world are sort of the same world it's a venn diagram that's close to a circle that's really, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because it makes it a little easier. You don't feel like, oh, I'm giving up my art to pursue teaching. You're, mm-hmm. you know, most art schools are saying you need to be producing art, especially if you're on a tenure track job, you know, and the mm-hmm. way that uh, my dad has to publish articles to try to get tenure um, as a business professor, artists and art schools are having to create work and show that at museums and show that in galleries mm. as part of that tenure process. So your art practice gets enmeshed in that. So a lot of artists do choose to do that. Um, I'd say that a majority of the artists I know are also teachers in some kind of institution yeah, um, yeah, yeah. from community college to public college to private universities. Yeah. So it's an art form in and of itself. It's an art form in and of itself. And so for me, I think the door is kind of open on where I'd want to end up. Like, I love academia. I wouldn't mind being adjacent to academia. Maybe like a long-term art residency at a university sounds really ideal, where I get to still interact with students but create my own work. Um, I could also see myself teaching. At this point, I have a year left, so I'm really just trying to see what options (laughs) kind of emerge. And the thing is, like, because I already have a job at Level Ground – I'm not necessarily freaking out about like, oh, I'm going to kind of land in this space without work afterwards. Like I can kind of take my time to figure out what I need. And again, mm-hmm. that's I definitely acknowledge that's a privilege. We'll get back to the day job. But I, I do want to mention that I think that you would be a pretty awesome teacher. Did you know actually that I am in film because of you? Yeah, I do know that, which is... <laughs> <laughs> Still wild to me, to be completely honest. Completely um, wild. <laughs> yeah, I'll, like I'll catch everybody up. I remember it was I. It was my first year of college. I had just gotten done doing a music program. I did not mesh well with that program, and I was kind of at a loss of what to do. And went into some sound recording because I thought like, oh, I'll, I'll like I'll, I'll record some sound, and somehow got into sound design, which was I, I, I learned later that filmmakers hate doing sound. <laughs> some of them do anyway. And we were working on, like, one thing that our school did was, or and, and does, is every four years they, they they try to create a feature or some big project of a magnitude so people can, you know, be a part of 
a larger project. And I remember being part of your world for the first time. And I'm just like, man, this is amazing. But I know nothing about film, nothing whatsoever. I would hear terms like F-stop and shutter speed and, you know, all the stuff that I had no idea about. And I remember exactly where we were sitting. We were sitting in the cafeteria on one of the lunch breaks in the summer when we were doing post for this film. And I was just like, man, this seems so cool, but I don't know anything about it. And you were just like, I didn't know anything about it. I had no idea what F-stop and shutter speed was. And he's just like, that's why you come to school. So you can <laughs> it was uh, like it, it seems obvious, but you know, I, it like at that particular time when we were doing academia for for going into film, you know, it was a it was a, a hump that I didn't know that I had to get over, and I don't know, it was just it was really cool. But in other places that you've been extremely helpful is those practical day job type tips. <laughs> like I remember you were also the first person to tell me about a Roth IRA. So I'd like to give the listeners a little bit of a peek uh, at what it takes financially to be a filmmaker in experimental art. We've talked a little about finances before and I've always appreciated your transparency. So like it would be incredibly difficult to not take those kind of crew jobs and, you know, like that kind of thing things that would come along. How do you sustain yourself? You already mentioned that you're not paying for that grad degree. I'm not paying for mine, which by the way, you know, that's probably another conversation. But uh, yeah, you guys, if you're going for a grad degree, there are options. <laughs> but I would like to know what it takes financially. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, my first years in LA were a struggle. You know, I was coming from this job that paid pretty well in London to L.A. where I was having to freelance and the industry was right after the writer's strike had ended. Mm. So jobs were scarce. I realized I just kind of hated being on set a lot of the time. There were really some good days, but a lot of times it just was stressful and awful and realizing you had to prove yourself to a new group of people every time you got a new gig. Mm. Um, you weren't going back with the same co-workers. You had mm. to kind of start from zero all over again. It got exhausting. Mm. But I did that for about two years. I ended up working as a janitor for six years after that. Not the easiest choice, but a choice that I made because I realized I didn't have the space to work on my own stuff. Mm -hmm. And if I was just going to continue being crew, I likely would never have the space to work on what I wanted to do. And so, yeah, it's one of those scary choices where you feel like I'm in this path on the film industry and I'm stepping outside of that. Because again, then my conception is I have to do this within the film industry. I have to get to a place where I can create a bubble in this world. Mm -hmm. And so stepping away from that was really scary. But that did allow me to have the space to start the nonprofit and work on that um, and do that with folks like Adam Buck and Pavel Rutherford, um, both incredible friends of mine. I needed that space. And so I worked as a janitor for six years as my day job to give myself space. And at that point, the rule became whatever my job is, it has to give me space for my own practice, for my art practice. Mm -hmm. And so from there, I kind of shifted into doing social media. Six years um, in, I was I was able to leave that job to do kind of social media management work. And I just kept kind of nudging closer and closer and closer to like trying to do stuff within the art space itself. I'd been volunteering at Level Ground for years. The opportunity came along to be their first resident artist. They gave me a nice little chunk of money to create uh, a year's worth of experimental films. So I did mm -hmm. 11 films in 11 months. Oh 11 different God. collaborators and each film yeah. could only be 59 seconds long. I wow. also created the rule that I couldn't collaborate with any cis men. So it just, these really interesting mm. kind of projects came along. Mm. I finished up with level ground and sort of had helped them build an idea for a future residency program and thought, well, I'm on to the next thing after mm. that. Keep doing social media. 
And Samantha Curley, the director of Level Ground, was like, no, no, I want you to now run the program. Um, And it wasn't a full-time job. It still isn't. But I've been doing that for about five years now. Mm -hmm. And that was a big help in starting to work fully in art space. And so that was kind of my long journey there. But yeah, financially, I make the joke all the time that I didn't just have to pick one difficult medium. I picked two. Like film is an incredibly expensive medium. It can be. Mm -hmm. And I also do installation art, which is incredibly (laughs) expensive. And I combine them. So I don't know what I'm doing. But um, (laughs) as far as funding for a while, I was just it took like Ritual Cycle, my first solo show, which opened in 2016. Took me and my collaborators, Scott um, and Heather Dapolonia, who also graduated from Southern, it took us three to four years to finish just because we would shoot something and then save money, save money, save money, save money, and then pull it and then shoot something else. And the only reason that was able to get done in even just three years was because we're all three people pooling money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As I started getting uh, better paying jobs, I was able to kind of like fund myself. But, you know, that comes at a price, you know, you're funding it at the expense of a lot of other things in your life because you're kind of pouring any expendable money Outside of that Roth IRA savings, so important, Mm. folks, especially (laughs) if you're an artist. Um, (laughs) You know, everything else was going into my work. And so it's a really, it becomes a difficult way to live. So one of the things I did a few years ago was start um, a Patreon. And I don't get a ton of money off of that, but I have a really loyal little group of patrons. They get my behind the scenes. They get like a bi-monthly newsletter. They get kind of my thoughts about what's happening through this process and in return, I get about $220, $230 a month. Mm-hmm. And that all just gets, like, I don't spend that immediately. That just sits, 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 sits in a cruise. And whenever I have a project, I have that to at least start pulling from. I joke that I have a grant curse. Grants are often the way you fund artwork. In okay. 15 years of writing grants, I've never gotten a single grant. So grants have yeah. not worked for me yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> historically. So often it's a combination of Patreon. It's a combination of a few other things. But um Samantha, my boss at Level Ground, um, and at this point, a very good friend, challenged me at the end of my last big project, which was Heavenly Brown Body in 2019, where I spent a ton of my own money for this um, uh, piece that went up in the Torrance Art Museum. She said, I think you should take the challenge that from here on out, you don't spend a cent of your own money on your projects anymore. Mm. She's like, it's time. Mm -hmm. And so what that's meant in some ways is I'm downscaling a little bit. Mm. Like, what are the things I can do with just the money I get in on Patreon? What's... Mm. And... That's a good creative challenge. It hasn't, you know, been an issue. And if I want to do a bigger project, I will wait for that grant or that fellowship or whatever. The nice Mm -hmm. thing with school is that we also get some stipending for um, work. But that's still a question I have to solve. Like, I have some ambitious plans. And so I am questioning, like, where do I get some of that funding from? Mm -hmm. Um, So that'll be a question that gets answered. But I'm constantly filling out grant applications, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, just trying to get um, more money for projects. Um, So a lot of it is about knowing the grant process, getting grants. And again, I'm speaking broadly as an artist, having these alternate streams of income, sometimes it's funding it yourself. Something for me that's a standard though, is that I will always pay cast and crew. You know, I got past the point where I was asking people to volunteer years ago. Mm -hmm. I will pay cast and crew. And if there's a group of collaborators, we will be paid last if paid at all. Because it's not really about that. It's about creating the work. And Mm -hmm. most of us will have other incomes that help us kind of survive that. But I want to pay my cast and crew at union rates. I won't shoot something until I have the funds to do it that, at that rate, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that can be sometimes difficult. And sometimes it means, again, I shoot a smaller project. But something, it's so funny because one of the most successful shorts I've had is something that I shot and edited in 48 hours with mm-hmm. a zero budget. <laughs> <laughs> That's how <laughs> it know, is, isn't it? I put 
blood, sweat, and tears into some of these projects. <laughs> ritual Cycle takes three or four years. I don't think any of the Ritual Cycle films have been shown in any other. No, that's not true. Now they've been. Now they're starting to get seen in other galleries and mm-hmm. places. But it took years for that. And then A2 Number One, which is part of a series where I'm just doing these kind of improv, spontaneous films. Literally, like the day I started submitting it to both gallery shows and film festivals, it just blew up. And I was like, what? <laughs> How did this happen? So, you know, it's a, it, it shows also that like a lot of this is that building of experience to that point where I could create something in this fast period of time that I think showed the experience that I have, but also that it doesn't take a massive budget to necessarily do that. Something else I was going to say, though, is what I love about the art world versus the film world is, you know, with a film, you release a film. Mm-hmm. And a week after its release, it's old news. Like, it's what you're doing next is the, the question. Yep. yep, yep. The really nice thing about the art world is that your old work is seen as your archive. It's seen as your catalog. And so mm. if I go to a gallery, they don't just want to see the thing I've been doing. They want to see my whole catalog. And they go, oh, this piece from like five years ago may fit with the theme we're doing. There's not this kind of bias towards it being quote unquote old. Yeah, um, yeah. It's just part of your work. Oh, interesting. And maybe that work it's seen, maybe, yeah. So there's, there's yeah, there's not this bias against like, well, that's, that's older work. We don't want to show that anymore. It's like, no, this is just work. Because again, the art world has a habit of showing everything from like a thousand years ago to now. Mm-hmm. So there's not, again, this weirdness about, oh, this is a classic or anything. There's not that language around it. The way in film, you know, it's like, oh, we're having a classic film screening versus this is just a film from this filmmaker's body of work. Would you say that that's kind of an option for potential passive income? Like, does it ever become profitable? Is it something that, you know, would provide financially possibly in the future? Let's say a museum wants to buy a piece of my work. They can go through my catalog and maybe they say, we'd like to buy the ritual cycles and have those as our collection. That potentially is a way for income. That's a rare thing. I don't think it's to be expected, Mm -hmm. um, but it is a way to do that. And that's probably the easiest way for an experimental filmmaker to have work sold in that particular way. You know, I also have works that are being distributed by like, one of my pieces is distributed by Reverie, which is an LGBTQ plus um, streaming network. And that's split among the the cast, my producer and myself. Mm -hmm. And we get something like, nine dollars every quarter so that's not like (laughs) it's a joke bill viola for example is considered one of the most successful experimental filmmakers and video artists in kind of art history and he sold a piece to the guggenheim museum for i think three hundred thousand dollars which i think is the most expensive or yeah it's the the highest price tag that's been attached to a piece of video art Hmm. um, in history Obviously, that's a route you could go. Um, but again, that's not to be expected. If you're looking to have a gallery represent you, at that point, they really can't sell video art. That's really difficult because most collectors aren't going to want to buy that. Um, mm. And then you as the artist also have to make the decision, like, do I want to give up the rights to this? Like, does this person mm. not fully own this? Or am mm. I going to create additions? You get this thumb drive with this art and you get one of three, but I retain the original edition. Like, that's a way mm. to think about it potentially. So you have to kind of think through what you want. But a lot of galleries are going to say they want like objects along with that. So, and this is already naturally a part of my process, but I like creating objects and I haven't done this a ton in my work um, in a way that objects are sellable, but I'm, I'm getting more and more towards that. We're like, I'm creating objects that maybe like will display the film or be part of the installation. And mm-hmm. then afterwards I could, if I had a gallery relationship and if I wanted to go this way, I could mm-hmm. say, oh, you get to buy this object that was part of this show. And this art object kind of stands on its own 
And so that could be a way to kind of make money. But for me, really, I think my interest is less in the kind of financial aspect. You know, I don't ever expect to sell something to a museum for tons of money. Um, Mm -hmm. I want to get in a place where my practice is sustainable. And that looks different for everybody. It means I can just keep creating my work and have my needs funded and taken care of. And also, and this is an important thing for me, have enough money to be able to take care of other people. I think that's super important. And I think a frustrating thing kind of in the past was going, oh, that person needs help. And I'm in just as bad a situation, so I really can't, but I would love to be able to help out. To be in a place where, and I'm getting closer to that now, which is really nice, where I can go, oh, I don't even have to blink. Here, take this. Mm -hmm. Here's Here's either money or here's, you know, something that will provide you material benefit um, Mm -hmm. that I can give you. So that's important, but that doesn't have to come from my work specifically. I do want it to come from within the art world. So Mm -hmm. that if there was a goal at the end of my grad school that I can kind of specify, it's that I want to work within the art world, whatever that looks like. Maybe that's academia, maybe that's within the museum space. Mm -hmm. But I want like my money to be coming from the same place where I'm creating my work. When you curate projects or shows what do you look for in the artist? Like what is something that you will never work with versus something that you look for? That second question, I don't know if I can answer that, the never work with. Mm. That's not true. I think the one thing I would say is I wouldn't include art that I feel like punches down and Mm. hurts people who are marginalized. Mm -hmm. That's maybe my one barrier. Like beyond that, I'm like, bring it on. Let's see what you've got. And I want to consider things on a piece by piece basis. I guess I'm talking about like um, technical, not technical skill as in, but I'm I'm just like last time we talked to, uh, you know, a rigging grip and he was just like, you got to know your knots, you know, like what is that kind of equivalent of just like, yeah, I mean, like you have amazing work, but... (laughs) You know, I, and I don't know if there is a but in the art. In I don't know if there's a but either. I yeah. actually don't. Like, and this is why I say it's a piece by piece kind of evaluation. Mm-hmm. It's going, that piece works. Let's include that. Like, I, it really has to be like at this kind of minute level. Um, it's really hard to kind of have any kind of sweeping statements like, oh, oh, this artist is, you know, great with visuals, but for some reason has terrible sound quality. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe that terrible sound quality really works in an installation. Um, and like, I'm maybe I'm doing an installation yeah. where I have like noise music in one corner and I have stuff. And like, maybe this artist didn't intend it, but like I get to put it there and it creates a really intense dissonance that's working for me as a curator. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's yeah, hard to yeah, make yeah. kind of hard and fast rules like that. Um, and I'm just kind of pulling that example from the air. There is a songwriting book who is it was basically laying out that there are craft writers and there are inspiration writers, like the inspiration ones that they'll wait mm. for 10 years before they can, you know, create like the perfect album. Right. And that's why the first one is always right. genius. And then the second one, when they only have a year to make something, it's just crap because then you're like, oh, all of a sudden I have to write something. And I don't know. I, I'm guessing that there does kind of sort of have to be a balance sometimes in the art world between, you know, earning your living and making sure that you show up on time or, you know, like if you're, I, I don't know if you're flake or, you know, that kind of thing uh, versus, you know, like being able to create on your own time. Cause you know, everybody's got to eat. I mean, yes, I think don't be a flake. Absolutely. Be consistent, be on time, show up. But there are so many artists who have gotten away with that for any <laughs> number of reasons, right. Who have almost built that into their personality yeah, I have friends yeah. like that who I adore, whose work I would absolutely curate, but I also know 
it's going to be a real pain to work with this person because they are definitely going to be 30 minutes late to every meeting. Yeah. But the work is so good and I just have to work around that. So mm. I, it really is so situational in this context. I mean, I have my base level of advice, like, please don't be that person. Please don't do that. Please don't. <laughs> but also, like, I know people who make it work for them. I don't know if one day that's going to bite them in the butt. It might. It might not. I think you have to kind of balance it out. Like, if you are a person who kind of is a little flaky and is like the loveliest person on earth who makes good art, great. If you're flaky and make good art, but you're really mean, I don't know if it's worth it for me, at least, to work with you. (laughs) 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 Yeah. But you were saying kind of what I'm broadly looking for. Really, when I'm curating a show, I'm interested in the story that I'm telling. Like, I see it often as someone composing a symphony. Like, here are my violins. So this is how this flows to here are my cellos. Here's my percussion. Here's my woodwind. Here are my horns. And how do I tie that together so that when you enter the gallery, you move through a narrative? And I don't want it to be kind of a narrative that hits you in the head, but there is a flow that pulls you through Mm -hmm. the installation or the space or the exhibition. And so I'm constantly thinking about like the flow. So, you know, I'm just always putting it up and putting it down. Often what we'll do is we'll, when you're setting up a show, you put everything kind of on the floor. So you can kind of just really easily move around. Oh, this should go here. This should go here. Even when I'm curating a show, and I don't do it that often. I don't consider myself a curator as much as I'll do it once or twice a year and kind of dip my toe into that space. But once I have all the artwork, I'll often just spend hours just like with my eyes closed, picturing the space, picturing where the art is, walking myself through the space and thinking about how everything kind of connects and is in conversation with each other. In this particular community, where would somebody who's just starting out, um, like, is there there a Twitter community? Is there, like, magazine subscriptions, a Reddit community? (laughs) Like, where would they find others? Right. I'm sure there's all of those things. I think it can be really difficult. This is the honest truth. Like, it took me years. Like, I moved to L.A. in 2008, and it really wasn't until 2013, 2012, Mm -hmm. 2013, where I start really starting making inroads within the art world. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be honest, part of it was that I didn't know what I was looking for in that. And I think maybe if I had, it would have been a little easier, but I'm not sure about that. Mm-hmm. Well, this is one of the things we're trying to solve with Level Ground by having a community for people who are emerging artists who don't necessarily have communities to be able to tie them into community and then mm-hmm. connect them with our community. So we see this as a hub where once you're in, suddenly you have access to my network and you have access to mm. the 70 other artist networks and suddenly all the networks have a central meeting place. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think things are so spread apart and disparate. Um, and that I'm speaking specifically from an LA context. I can't speak to a New York context. Mm. I think it might be different in that case. I don't fully know. Um, I know that has a much more established visible art scene, but I, from at least what I've heard, it can be difficult to work your way in without having kind of the right connections. Mm-hmm. And from what I found in the LA art scene, it is a very open arms art scene. You just have to find your opening into that. I think as it gets more visible, that becomes easier. But I mean, some of the advice I give young artists is if there is a gallery creating work that you like and feels resonates with your own work and you kind of imagine yourself being in that gallery one day, show up at every opening, talk to the gallerist, talk to the curator, ask good questions, make yourself a known entity. These days, one part of that is like taking a a picture or a few things for, you know, your stories and Instagram at the gallery, tagging the gallery, making them aware that you were there, you were interested in the work. I think all that becomes a part of kind of making yourself a known entity in that world. And it's not easy work. It's sometimes slow. Mm-hmm. You keep showing up at those places, you'll, you're going to keep seeing some of the same people. Like, it's so funny now. 
I'll go to art shows and I know that there's going to be these three or four people who are consistently going to be there. And like <laughs> yeah. you all get to know each other in that way and you start realizing how small the world actually is. Mm-hmm. But it kind of takes just showing up and showing up and showing up. All right. Now we're going to ask about some tools of your trade. What we usually ask is, you know, kind of like what gear or gadget is an old reliable. What's a reliable resource? All right. Here we go. Uh, Evernote. Evernote. Ooh, okay. Evernote is an application that allows you to make lists and notes. And honestly, it helps save my life. It helps me keep organized. I have lists of my lists, um, but it helps me kind of think through everything, especially in pre-production, which I'm sure you've heard people say on this podcast before, pre-production is the most important part of any project. Mm -hmm. That doesn't change doing art stuff. Even in the stuff that's supposed to be spontaneous, the most time I spend on that is pre-production just to make sure that I have the space for spontaneity. Mm -hmm. But it means, yeah, I'm constantly doing lists. Like, what are the things I need to accomplish today towards this? And what are the things I need to accomplish tomorrow? And Mm -hmm. so just having things in visual form, on paper, as it were, in front of me that I can kind of move through gives me a good living record of the project and allows me to make sure things aren't falling through the cracks. I do remember, I remember having Evernote a while ago and I I like, I have just like notes now, you know, like the Apple notes. And I was just kind of curious, what's a, what's a notable difference between the two? Like, why would you go with Evernote and not like notes? Cause like, I remember Evernote when they first allowed you to, to draw on it. And I was just like, oh, this is amazing. Notes needs this. And then I got it. And then, you know, uh, random stuff right. like that. I think it's organizational. Like I'm able to like have notebooks and then within that I have specific notes so I can kind of really organize as neatly as I want. Um, And then just kind of the functionality of how I arrange those notes. Um, It can also, you can kind of connect it with like your Google Drive. And so I can, you know, have my notes and I can connect to a document in Google. So Mm -hmm. I can just kind of have that cross functionality. That's really nice. A decade and a half ago would have been my notebook. (laughs) And now it's become Evernote. But that really is reliable. It's not necessarily a piece of gear. What about your new gadget that revolutionizes how you work? I'd say a new thing would be um, Fusion 360, which is a 3D design software that is designed specifically for being able to mill and 3D print. So you're kind of building to exact specifications and it's built with those tools in mind. So if I want to mill something on a CNC mill... I can design it that way so that the mill is speaking the same language as, as the program. Same thing with 3D printing. And that's been a really good way to create objects for my installations, one. But two, it's also a good way to just lay out my installation because Ooh. I can do it with exact measurements and I can set up kind of a rough gallery setup. Yeah. And I can set up where my projectors are, the throws and everything. And that's a really great pre-production visualization tool. So, so both for like creating CAD? objects, but also for pre-vis. Yeah, it's a very similar to CAD. And okay. I believe... Fusion 360 is actually created by AutoCAD. So it's in the family of... Yeah, and then I'd say the other thing that is becoming, I wouldn't say a standard, but it's a new tool that I'm enjoying is processing. Processing is a code language, a coding language that was written specifically for artists. Uh, It's really enjoyable to use. Sometimes is like, I have a hard time wrapping my head around it. Like I think code (laughs) logic can be so complex and intricate, Ah, but um, it's a really approachable language and it was taught very well and again talking about the access right at UCLA Mm -hmm. I was able to learn the program from Casey Rees who's one of the people who like designed the language (laughs) that helps (laughs) (laughs) and is is a software artist right so I get to see like the incredible and I say definitely look up Casey Rees uh, R-E-A-S his work is beautiful but that's kind of the stuff that I'm still thinking about like how do I integrate this into my work Um, I'm going to be working with 
Jenna Caravello, who's a professor in the department with learning mocap software soon. Mm. Um, <gasps> and thinking about oh. how do I integrate this into my work? Yeah. How does volumetric capture get integrated in my work? Do I want to integrate in my work? Yeah, yeah. I'm excited to learn and then kind of see if it becomes a worthwhile addition to my work. So this is all kind of the new stuff that I'm really kind of having fun playing with. Um, yeah. I, now that we're back on campus, um, which is nice, um, I have access to our fabrication lab. And so I've been getting retrained into things like table saws and like <laughs> miter saws and like, and they have yeah. like massive, you know, uh, power tools that are really exciting mm-hmm. to me too, as an installation maker. Man, if it comes to mocap stuff, call up Jim Turner. <laughs> true enough. True enough. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was working on that on, on Avatar. He was, he was talking to us about it from an episode way back, but dude, the possibilities within art would just be limitless. Exactly. Oh my gosh. That would be incredible. So this is quickly becoming one of my favorite questions. (laughs) I, I love to hear stories about when things went wrong, when something went wrong and what you did to fix it or grow from it. Um, The funny thing is, as soon as you say that, so many stories come to mind because everything always goes wrong. (laughs) I don't know if I've been on a project where something didn't go wrong. <laughs> I was shooting something that's actually part of a show that's coming up in about two weeks for me. Our grad preview show is what we call it um, at UCLA. Mm. But I was shooting two films for that. Um, the second film I shot at the beginning of this year. And I got in this location that I was really excited about, this beautiful kind of hillside location in Malibu. You know, we're shooting with COVID, so I really want to be outside. And the day before the shoot, the location called me and said, we've got to cancel. We've had some issues on the property and we have to fix them and we can't let you shoot here. Yeah. And so I had to scramble and in less than 24 hours find a new location and it completely changed the texture of the film. Absolutely 100% different film. Oof. And good? maybe better for it, honestly. Yeah, yeah. 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 Like sometimes like those it, happy like Ultimately, work. I kind of look, I look at the film now and I'm like, I can't imagine it being a different way. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I have so many stories. Uh, a lot of them are about location cancellations, honestly, mm-hmm. or space cancellations. Um, my second solo show, 59, where that project with 11 59-second films, we had this gallery that honestly has been my dream gallery since I moved to L.A. Um, Urban Outfitters has a gallery in downtown Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a gorgeous gallery, glass, uh, like or windows, I should say, on all one side of it. It's mm-hmm. lets light in, passerbys can see what's happening in the gallery. It's beautiful. I was going to show the films there. We're going to create these installations out of kind of reclaimed windows that we're going to hang throughout the space to create these like transparent chambers. Yeah. Three weeks before the show, the gallery pulls out. (laughs) And so again, we have to scramble and not just scramble the location that I end up getting this great space called aerial house can't accommodate the installation we're thinking about. Oh, no. So I had to completely redesign the installation, completely do something from scratch that was very different. And we ended up using the windows as like, we hung them for credits, but we couldn't kind of make chambers out of them because of the way the ceiling worked. Mm-hmm. So we just could ha- like place them directly on the wall. And so we just used them to kind of do the credits for each of the films. Mm-hmm. But then I took a bunch of these wooden pallets and I ripped them apart. And this like took a week and a half or so. And then I <laughs> built them into these viewing stands for the screens and kind of did a simpler installation that way. But yeah, things are always going wrong. Um, In the midst of it, I'll tell people and like often their reaction is, it's fine, you'll get through this, you'll make it work. 
And my response is always, I might not make it work. And that's okay, too. Like, it's sometimes okay if things completely fall apart. Like, it doesn't feel good. But I think we are so uncomfortable with this idea of, like, something fully collapsing. Mm-hmm. And what we think of as failure. That we don't want to acknowledge that when somebody else kind of shares that something might fall apart. We're like, no, 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 you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do try to push back and go, it might not be fine. It might actually completely fall apart. And mm-hmm. I will have to deal with what that feels like at that end. Um, mm-hmm. So far, I've been mostly lucky in that things haven't completely fallen apart. But like I was mentioning before, I had a nonprofit that completely fell mm-hmm. apart, you know. Um, yeah. I wasn't able to rescue that. Good things came of that down the road, but it mm-hmm. you know, wasn't this immediate like, oh, we turned it around. There's a su- success story. There isn't a success story there. And I think that's okay. I feel like that's something that artists can actually do really well, which is, which is adapt. You know, those happy accidents that kind of turn into I mean I think of just like drawing and sketching and you know some something might go out of line and then you just kind of like fill it in so it's like it just might be broader than what you thought it was going to be that particular stroke but um right yeah I, I think that rolling with the punches artists are kind of pre-wired <laughs> to do in some ways we really are this is a broad statement and I will just go ahead and apologize to filmmakers upset by this um but <laughs> kind of one of my jokes is that the thing that I realized in shifting from the film industry to the art world, and this is, I'm, I'm speaking very broadly, is that so many people I encountered here in LA in the film industry were so sure that they were going to be successful. They're going to make it. They're going to be a name. Mm. Like they had this deep belief in that. And the art world, none of us think we're going to be successful. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a very, there's a very different attitude that happens like in that previous yeah. attitude there almost this desperation starts happening as you start mm-hmm. moving through life and maybe that success isn't coming in the way that you thought it would mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it makes it harder yeah. to acknowledge the success that has emerged in your life yeah. because you have this one vision that you're stuck on when you're coming from a place where you're like i don't know i probably won't make it then any success <laughs> feels exciting and i mean i don't know if that's necessarily a healthier thing but i do appreciate that point of view because it does make me more open to appreciating like the successes like i don't think i'm ever going to be at the guggenheim or you know the moma or mm. serpentine gallery in london if I get there, it'll be a really exciting surprise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there can be a good, healthy blend of both, you know, because, yeah. I mean, there is one thing of that, you know, being able to roll with the punches and adapt to the things that have fallen through. Um, this podcast exactly. is <laughs> like happened because of that. Um, you know, there's there's lots of stuff where you can you can have those images because I know that you are, I mean, you, you say like, Oh yeah, I don't think I'm going to be great or anything, but I also know you to be extremely like self-driven and like headed towards a direction. Like, y- you know what I mean? Like I, I don't oh, feel yeah. like you're just floating <laughs> by any means. Uh, no, no. And I don't feel like I'm, I'm going to, here's the thing is for me, I guess what I should say is for me, success looks like creating the work that I want to create anything beyond yeah. that is wonderful. But it's not necessarily this. I think what I mean is this kind of idea of commercial and visible success. I don't Mm. expect that. That's Mm -hmm. not for me. Success is continuing to be able to create the work that I want to create. Anything beyond that is a really great thing. And I love that. What current projects are you excited about? So by the time this is going to air, I will have just wrapped up my grad show, which is work that I've been doing over the past year that I have been very excited about. But um, work that I am thinking about now is my thesis project. Like that's what I get to think about for the next year. And that's really exciting. Um, and I really want to 
combine a lot of the stuff I'm learning. If I was going to describe my work, I would say that I am exploring Black queer futures through a lens of dream logic. I think dreams give us a really wonderful space to explore and open space up for us to think about better worlds and better futures or alternate worlds and alternate futures, things that are different from kind of the paths we think we might be stuck on. I'm always thinking about, and one of the reasons installation space is important to me is I'm thinking about how do we bring dream space into waking life? How do we, how do I bring dream space into a gallery? And suddenly mm-hmm. I hope that if you enter one of my chambers, I'm messing with things just enough that you feel a little off kilter mm. in the way that dreams do in really wonderful ways. So I really want to kind of combine all of that in hopefully a fresh way with my thesis. So I'm really excited about combining all those ideas. I've been doing tons of research on things like West African ritual and tradition, um, the way mm. that combined with Protestant traditions mm. during um, antebellum times with enslaved people, how they sort of mm. subverted Protestant religion with their own kind of beliefs, this religion that kind of was forced on them mm. by plantation owners, how they move through space, the ideas that they created geographies that look different from these geographies of the plantation and how we can maybe take lessons from that today, um, how they built kind of better worlds and little pockets for themselves. I'm researching mm. that. I'm reading a lot about Afro-pessimism and Black optimism and um, mm-hmm. Black futurity and queer futurity. So all this yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. that's like wonderfully heady and academic, I'm trying to boil down into visual language, into poetic cinema for myself. Yeah. And then create space where anybody can kind of walk in and they're not confronted with like a wall of words but they get mm. these images that create affect, create emotion that will take you on a journey. Mm-hmm. And what is your hope? What is wh- your dream? Like, what is your dreamscape for this particular project? What it would accomplish? I create space where you feel like you have permission to dream about better worlds and then start building those and be part of building those. Like, what does it look like to come into the space and go, wait, maybe things can look differently. And I'm not interested in kind of creating shiny sci-fi visuals. That's not what I'm interested in, but I'm talking about what does fairness look like in different worlds? Who are the people that are represented? Who shows up? How do things feel like? You know, I'm much more interested in the more kind of internal worlds of what better futures look like. Maybe that's shiny skyscrapers. I don't know. That's not particularly my interest. I'm interested in kind of the dream space of future worlds and what that feels like. So yeah, hopefully in inviting you into those spaces, you get charged up with an idea. You feel like you can start creating pathways. I I think I have this concept that like the best thing I can do is just leave my little part of a pathway that people can keep building on. Mm -hmm. So hopefully this is my part of building that pathway. Then other people can kind of join and add their bricks to that pathway. So how do people find and follow this work? You can find me at lesliefoster.art. Super easy. I'm also Leslie underscore muse on Instagram. Um, Those are the easiest places to find my work. And I believe you can find me at patreon.com slash Leslie Foster. Awesome. And I always wrap up with this question. What questions should I have asked you? Something I'm thinking about is whether we actually defined experimental film for people. Um, I don't know that we did. So if I was going to define experimental film, because I think it's important for folks to kind of have a framework for this. I love this definition from Elements of Cinema because it's a little snarky. So I'm going to go ahead and read this and kind of add my own context. Elements of Cinema says, also known as avant-garde, experimental films are rare and totally unpopular. Some people may spend their entire lives without ever catching a glimpse of an experimental movie. Most will never sit through one. As the word experimental suggests, this type of movie is trying something new, different, 
so different that at first it will cause confusion, if not annoyance, on the viewer. In simple terms, experimental films are incredibly easy to define but quite difficult to understand since most people have no preconception of what they are. Imagine a movie that is neither narrative nor documentary. What remains? Chaos, disorder, incoherence. Like any other art form, cinema can also be a therapeutic activity. This is not to imply that those who make them are ill or demented. Not at all. (laughs) However, some directors are not concerned about what people may think or commercial success. Again, experimental films are not imprisoned by story structure, character arc, or common sense. (laughs) I love that definition. Despite the snarkiness, I think it gives you an idea of this. Um, I'd say experimental film falls into kind of two major schools. And one is where artists like Stan Brakhage were like actively messing with the medium itself. Stan Brakhage would expose pieces of the film to light and scratch it and play with it and actually change Mm -hmm. the physical media. And you see this now with people kind of coding film and messing with film and playing with distortion and the grain and kind of actually impacting kind of the structure, we'd say the formal aspects of the film itself. And then you have experimental film that's more conceptual, uh, may use any range of objects, but isn't so much concerned with kind of messing with the physical form of the film or the digital film, as it were, but with kind of playing with weird conceptual kind of ideas. And then, of course, you have plenty of merging. There's not really a binary there. Plenty of those cross over. I also see film kind of under that. Those films can kind of occupy two spaces. One is ambient narrative and this idea of narrative that just kind of fills space that isn't kind of your traditional ABC narrative, but one that's more poetic. And then spatial narrative, where you have multiple screens that are kind of in dialogue with each other. And I really love playing with spatial narrative, where you have kind of multiple pieces of media that all kind of connect a space. And suddenly you get something that's much larger than the sum of its parts. Would they consider, you know, something like Baraka or, you know, Tree of Life? Terrence Malick's Tree of Life, Baraka. I would absolutely consider these long form experimental work. I think most of Terrence Malick's films fit into that. And it's interesting is like experimental filmmakers like Doug Aiken, who Mm -hmm. almost exclusively works within gallery context and museum context, often will use known faces, known entities. So there are these experimental filmmakers who are working with kind of more famous people. Matthew Barney, you know, works with people like Paul Giamatti and his work, you know. So I think there's definitely like some interesting crossover there. Music videos speak the same language of experimental filmmaking. Most music videos do. Most music videos come from that same world and that mindset. They're non-narrative. They're non-linear. They're playing in that space. So if you have grown up watching music videos, you already have a bit of the vocabulary of experimental film. And I think that's a really exciting thing to start understanding that you can actually walk into a gallery that's showing experimental film and have at least the basic grammar already in your mind because of music videos, because they're playing in Mm -hmm. that same world. I'd also say if you're interested in diving in, a good place to start is with Terrence Nance's um, Random Acts of Flyness on HBO, which is a six episode series of experimental films all kind of woven together and it's brilliant. Ah, amazing. Thank you. If you enjoyed this interview, follow us right here and on Instagram. Ask us questions and check out more episodes at thepracticalfilmmaker.com. Be well and God bless. We'll see you next time on The Practical Filmmaker.